the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Monday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, the website, and podcast, and source material and you also get it when i post it on social media at dan prof show follow me on instagram too if you want to really see all the golf courses i play mainly but anyway uh, we begin on uh, this monday program uh what we have learned over the weekend about the hunter biden story that continues to evolve there's no question about it uh, more information be, being made available by reporting being done by just a couple of outlets mainly the new york post and Fox News, of course. Now, to their credit, CBS News at least has one reporter who was willing to ask the question of Joe Biden that uh, George Stephanopoulos was not willing to ask, nor were any of the canned members of the audience at Joe Biden's Thursday town hall. Most of the questions that Joe Biden has fielded uh, since the town hall and since this story broke have been of, of this variety. Uh, Joe Biden uh, in Philadelphia getting a milkshake. Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden, what flavor did you get? We got one vanilla, one chocolate, but I wanted to get a what we call black and white, because we're going to move it. Gonna yeah. Split it. And one more question. Very probing. Uh, that was in Durham, North Carolina, by the way. I think it's said Philadelphia. Durham in North Carolina. Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I guess Hunter's shipment of fried ice cream from the Wang Fujing Street Market was delayed, so he went with the uh, milkshake from that uh, stand in Durham, North Carolina. But uh, Bo Erickson, getting back to the substance of the matter, CBS News did put the question to Joe Biden while on the tarmac uh, leaving for his basement on Friday. And Mr. Biden, Mr. Biden, what is your response to the New York Post story about your son, sir? I know you'd ask it. I have no response. It's another smear campaign. Right up your alley. There's a question you always ask. And, and did you a smear campaign. I have no response. Smear campaign. Okay. All right. Well, um, over the weekend, Fox News reported that uh, one of the individuals on the uh, alleged Hunter Biden email that involves discussions of a business deal with Chinese energy company, CEFC China Energy Company, uh, that in point of fact, um, the reference to the big guy we discussed on Friday, The big guy gets cut in for a 10 percent equity stake. That was, in fact, a reference to Joe Biden, according to one unnamed source. Okay, so I'm not going to run around hair on fire like the D.C. press corps does when somebody cooks up an unnamed source. But Fox News reporting that the uh, source verified the emails as authentic. And uh, the source for Fox News was one who was CC'd on the email chain. Okay. The email outlining a provisional agreement under which 80 percent of equity or shares in a new company would be split among equally among four people whose initials correspond to the sender and three recipients. 
with the H uh, referenced referring to Hunter Biden, according to the source. Sources telling Fox News again that the big guy is a reference to the former vice president. So this becomes particularly relevant because the assertion is, of course, not just influence peddling based on dad's name and office, but uh, cutting dad in on the deal. And that starts to get uh, problematic. Peter Schweitzer, he of Clinton Cash, he of Secret Empires, written extensively about the Biden family, also uh, has more emails. Now, these are separate and distinct from the computer, from the Delaware computer repair shop that um, uh, was turned over uh, that has these emails and pictures and other uh, lewd information or videos or what have you, according to Rudy Giuliani, who we're going to speak with momentarily. Peter Schweitzer was given access to the email account of former Hunter Biden partner Bevan Cooney. Bevan Cooney's a former Viper room owner, a popular nightclub in L.A. He's also a convicted felon, as is Devin Archer, hired to Hunter Biden's other business partner. You may be asking yourself, how is it that Hunter Biden's business partners in these foreign dealings, how are they both uh, convicted felons, uh, Cooney having served jail time, and Hunter Biden has not been touched? Great question. Uh, Peter Schweitzer uh, describes uh, a number of things. And just to be clear, Sean, we have actually been granted access to his account. So we're not looking at printouts. This is not secondhand. We go into his Gmail account with his written approval. He gave us the password. Uh, and what those emails show, the 26,000 show, we're working our way through them, is a wide net of, of using uh, the Biden name, using access to the White House, uh, serving uh, Hunter serving as the pipeline to the administration as as a means to help their clients and gain clients. Uh, the names that come up in this are the Chinese, the Russians, the Ukrainians, the Kazakhs. It's a veritable United Nations of corruption. Uh, and what it demonstrates is that Joe Biden, as vice president of the United States, was a center point. It was almost the planet around which these business activities uh, moved. Mm-hmm. And uh, story Schweitzer is working on that will be forthcoming this week, he told our friend Sean Hannity, uh, relates to one specific transaction. This is three and a half million dollars from the former Moscow mayor's wife in which uh, he suggests Schweitzer and his business partners may have um, been doing things. I mean, he a roundabout way, he basically says money laundering. Listen, well, it kind of jumps around. But let me just uh, make clear. Um, these are all separate emails uh, from the New York Post and what the Senate did. But they all reinforce the same. I mean, to take for an example, uh, Miss Batterina, uh, the Russian oligarch linked to organized crime that the Senate said sent three point five million dollars. That's based on Treasury Department documents. Uh, we'll be rolling out a story in a couple of days demonstrating that there relationship, meaning Hunter and Devin Archer's relationship with Elena Batterina goes way back. And they were performing a number of banking and other financial services for her, uh, services that they had trouble doing, by the way, because several banks did not want to work right. with her so, because the money was seen as dirty. And look, as this is all coming together and being authenticated and being investigated uh, by news agencies, at least, let me let me just pose this in advance of Thursday night's final debate. And it's probably a question that President Trump is going to have to pose because I don't think you can expect somebody from NBC News to pose it. Joe Biden, you heard at the outset, termed this a smear campaign. 
Okay. So um, if I were President Trump, what I would say to Joe Biden on the debate stage, let's assume, arguendo, Vice President Biden, you're correct in terming the stories about your son and his computer and emails, a smear campaign, while authentication of both is pending. What would you say if FBI Director Ray and CIA Director Haspel, among others in my administration, took those unverified alleged Hunter Biden emails, opened up a counterintelligence investigation into him and everyone in his orbit, including you, on suspicion of collusion with America's enemies in Ukraine and or China? What would you say if such an investigation, including surveillance of your advisors, continued long after it became clear the evidence that served as the predicate for the investigation's launch had been thoroughly debunked? And per your answers to those questions, would you now like to revise and extend your previous characterizations of operations Crossfire Hurricane, Crossfire Dragon, Crossfire Typhoon, the Mueller investigation, and my impeachment? I mean, the, 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 the parallels here are manifest, and they should be prosecuted. And the last piece of this, before we get to Rudy Giuliani, is the hard drive and the FBI. The, the computer in question, the hard drive of it, which the FBI has apparently had, according to the New York Post and Steve Bannon in an interview in Revolver, uh, Revolver.news, the FBI's had for almost a year. New York Post reporting ex-Trump advisor Steve Bannon alerted the New York Post to the existence of the hard drive. And the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, provided a copy of files to media outlets. Giuliani says foreign sources did not provide the Hunter Biden emails. Steve Bannon says this about the FBI and Christopher Wray specifically. The president must confront the director of the FBI on why the information house on this hard drive was not moved on immediately. If the content of the hard drive had been released when received in November of 2019, there would have been no impeachment of Trump and Bernie Sanders would be the Democrat Party nominee. This confrontation should take place this weekend in the Oval Office. If Ray doesn't have a bulletproof reason, he should be fired in the room. And uh, I wonder just exactly what those conversations are ongoing about Christopher Ray and about the fact that this was sat on for, as, uh, as said, almost a year. What is the explanation for that? I would think that President Trump would demand an explanation. I would think that he would present the explanation if there is a good one. And if there is not a good one, then, you know, forget the source for a second, whatever you think about uh, Steve Bannon um, on the merits on the merits, if you were in that, the president's position, what would you do? If Ray doesn't have a good explanation, considering all the, considering all the other frustrations with Ray with respect to document production for Senate oversight committees and the like, then I'm inclined to be in agreement with Bannon. We'll be right back. What a wicked game you play To make me feel this way What a wicked thing to do Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and now to continue our conversation about all things Hunter Biden and Biden family related, pleased to be joined by former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us from your involvement with the Hunter Biden computer what it is you think we know and what it is we still need to find out. First of all, what you should know is it is absolutely without any doubt Hunter Biden's hard drive. It is not Russian disinformation, as the crooked Democrats are telling people. 
the director of national intelligence made that clear today. If the FBI is investigating whether it's Russian disinformation, they should investigate it. In fact, they should be investigating this because they've had it for seven months and haven't done a damn thing with it. The hard drive demonstrates in Hunter's own language, probably I'm counting about 10 federal crimes, several local crimes in the state of Delaware. The major scheme is outlined by Hunter. For 30 years, Hunter and the other relatives of Joe Biden have been collecting bribes for him, basically taking care of his expenses, which is why he lives in these beautiful homes and never really made much money until recently. They also have to kick back a half to him. Hunter lays it out very clearly to a younger Biden who I guess is going to start becoming a bag man. So you wonder, just as a human being, what kind of man this is who uses his drug-afflicted son, and he clearly is drug-afflicted. There are numerous pictures of him in crack dens, smoking crack. He got thrown out of the military for drugs after Joe illegally got him in. What kind of man uses his drug-afflicted son to do business with some of the most crooked people in the world. And, and I guess a man who's very dishonest and very greedy. With respect to the crimes you say uh, are potentially implicated in the information on that computer, one would be the, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, the same federal oh, law yeah, that, that caught simple. Manafort. That's about 10 times. I'm talking about major bribery. Really? I'm talking about millions of dollars from China. I'm talking about Joe getting a cut of that and Hunter admitting it. The big guy, that's what you're referencing? Yeah, well, the big guy, the big guy, there are, there are now witnesses to prove who the big guy is. You'd have to be an idiot not to figure out who the big guy is. Only the demented American crooked media misses the fact that the big guy is Joe Biden. You think yeah. China kept paying money to the Bidens for five years and wasn't getting any value for it? Mm-hmm. You think the Chinese are stupid? You think they're paying for a guy who can't stay away from crack for more than two days? Or are they paying to buy a vice president? Peter Schweitzer suggests that, uh, and he may have a story this week, the author of Secret Empires, the author of Clinton Cash, suggests that the uh, money that uh, Hunter Biden and his business partners got from the former first lady of Moscow, that was part of a relationship that uh, he and his partners had with that person that that really the way Schweitzer describes it is basically that they were laundering money for uh, Russian interests in Moscow. Well, that I haven't had a chance to investigate. I do know that he got $3.5 million from Batarina, who's not only one of the most crooked people in Russia, but one of Vladimir Putin's close allies. Mm-hmm. And as uh, Donald Trump's uh, defense lawyer, it really, really angers me because I spent, you know, two and a half years trying to prove that the Russian collusion thing was a hoax. And the FBI withheld the document that could have proved it in one minute, which is Brennan's handwritten note saying basically that Hillary Clinton made it up. I, mean, I don't know what the hell's wrong with the top of the FBI to hide things like that. And I have no idea why they're not investigating this. There are things on this hard drive that if you don't investigate it, there's something wrong with you. Steve Bannon said over the weekend that uh, President Trump should whistle Christopher Wray into the Oval Office, ask him why the FBI has sat on this hard drive for the better I, part I of a love, year. And, I and if, love to, I'd love to do it. I'd love to take him into the Oval yeah. Office or any point and put in front of him a couple of the pictures that I see and say, why don't you quit? You don't protect these people? Is there any plausible explanation you think could exist for Christopher Ray to not have investigated this? Do you think he should resign or be fired? Well, I'd, I'd like to hear his explanation. I'm not going to say somebody should resign or be fired without okay. hearing his explanation. But okay. I'd really like to hear his explanation. I'd also like to know why they're, why they're investigating whether this is Russian disinformation when the director of national intelligence just uh, explained that it isn't. Uh, he, he also has a letter in front of him, apparently, that uh, Ron Johnson said September 24th. Um, oh, he's been he's been stonewalling them for right, years. right, and so that's another question. What, why, why are you? You know, there, there seems to be. You know, 
they, they, they complain about stonewalling, but then there's no repercussions for Christopher Ray not producing documents that Senate oversight is entitled to. I have, I mean, I know, I know what Comey was doing. Comey was part of it. I mean, Comey was part of the, the attempt to illegally stop Trump from being president and then to illegally remove a lawfully elected president. I got it. I understand what Comey was doing. I have no idea what Christopher Ray is doing. Maybe he's stupid. I don't know. What about Department but of... I mean, if, if, um, if your FBI gets a hard drive like this, you know, in, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in just what I grew up in, you have to investigate. I don't care who it is. It could mm-hmm. be Donald Trump or it could be Joe Biden or it could be Cardinal somebody or whatever it is. They all get investigated. Uh, what, what about uh, the Department of Justice? I mean, two of Hunter Biden's main business partners, Devin Archer and um, and, uh, uh, and Cooney, have both they're both and Bevin Cooney. They're both convicted felons. Cooney served jail time. How do they go to prison and Hunter Biden doesn't? Well, I don't. Everybody that Hunter Biden is involved with is a crook. Uh, what kind of father has a drug addicted son involved with Mykola Zoshevsky, Budarina, uh, Zi uh, uh, Yingming? Who is a major was a major Chinese organized criminal, an intelligent intelligence operative, who was basically getting them roped into a business so he could extort them, and now is sitting at the bottom of the Yangtze River. These are the people that his old man Biden was putting him involved with. What kind of father is that? What's wrong with this man? And what's wrong with our American media that wants to propel a man like this? Well, and I think I think a lot of people say, what's yeah, I think what a lot of people say, what's wrong with a federal government that can't hold any of these people accountable? We're not going to get the Durham investigation completed before the election. It seems Comey, uh, Brennan, et cetera, not being held accountable in any material way, not really getting anybody associated with the Russian collusion hoax for three and a half years, other than a relatively low level attorney, Kleinsmith. And now we see this again, an example of the left projecting onto Trump everything they are and everything they're doing. And yet the Trump administration can't seem to bring these people to justice. Why? I, I don't have a good answer for you other than the deep state is a lot deeper than I thought. Mm. And I also think it's the intimidation of the media. I think there are a lot of people in government who realize if we do something favorable to the Democrats, the Washington Post, the New York Times, ABC, CBS, NBC treats us like heroes. And if we do something uh, uh, contrary to them, they're treated like uh, criminals, like I am. I mean, the stuff they say about me is totally ridiculous. I'm a Russian agent. I'm a a criminal. The FBI, I think they investigated me. I'm not sure. I mean, they can investigate me all they want. I don't commit crimes. But what I mean, they intimidate you. I've had people threaten me. I've had people that work with me lose their jobs because of this. They intimidate people. So you, you, the, the, a lot of the prosecutors aren't heroes. They're just ordinary people. And they know I go after Joe Biden. I might as well never go to a law firm. I mean, I, I, once this is over, I can give you a chapter and verse on the people who've been thrown out of law firms, intimidated by their law firms. And I think a lot of it comes back to China. A lot of these people are, have corrupted themselves by all the business they do with China. And, and do you think that the only chance we have for anything resembling accountability here on all these fronts is, is a Trump re-election? If Biden wins, all this just goes away? Oh, my God. If Biden wins, uh, if Biden wins we're, we're, we're finished for a long time. Uh, it, it would be a tragedy for this country. This is pro- probably one of the worst men who's ever run for president. Probably one of the dumbest, too. <laughs> He is former U.S. attorney. Former, I'm going to have to run, sir. Former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. Rudy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.
at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, switching from uh, Hunter Biden in our conversation with former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani, which was quite fascinating, uh, to uh, matters COVID related, particularly as it pertains to the impacts of lockdown policies. A um, useful piece in the Wall Street Journal focusing on real people living in Cincinnati. In the seven months after the coronavirus and shutdown tore through the city, Crayona McBerry lost half her income, then got it back, got sick, then recovered, risked eviction, then made her rent. Though she's still on her feet, it isn't relief she feels so much as anxiety. The 44-year-old single mom is working seven days a week as a cleaner, behind on some of her bills, and ever alert to what the virus might deal next. Yeah, that's an interesting way to report it, what the virus might deal next. Obviously, she got sick and then she recovered, as people do over the course of a year or, or so with respect to life. What the virus might deal next. Is it the virus stealing on her, losing her job or half her income, getting it back, risking eviction, then making a rent? Is that the virus doing that? Or is that human beings reacting to the virus, I wonder, in terms of the reporting? The uh, journal authors go on to offer other profiles. Hardly feels uh, that the recession will soon be over to Miss McBerry or to a Cincinnati entrepreneur whose coffee shop is still missing many of its customers. To a young woman who lost her dream job at General Electric. Or to a comedian who went seven months without a paying gig. Millions of Americans are on the downside of a recovery that is increasingly split with some parts of the economy roaring while other sectors languish. Yes, no kidding. Some people have been talking about that for six months. The uh, authors go on to point out uh, human ingenuity, resilience. Miss McBarry has improvised on childcare. The GE workers found a new job. The entrepreneur is keeping his businesses going. And the comedian is writing jokes for the pandemic era. Well, that's all well and good. But did you ever notice how the politicians who spend all their time telling you how much they care about you and how much they will provide for you are the ones who are the most dismissive about the horrors they actually visit upon you. I've noticed that Dr. Tony Fauci was on 60 minutes last night and he addressed lockdown policies and their impact. And um, maybe Tony Fauci, even at his uh, advanced age, should uh, consider a run for office because this is just the sort of happy thinking translated into empty bromides that people seem to enjoy. The country is fatigued with restrictions. So we want to use public health measures not to get in the way of opening the economy, but to being a safe gateway to opening the economy. So instead of having an opposition, open up the economy, get jobs back or shut down. No, put shutdown away and say we're going to use public health measures to help us safely get to where we want to go. And missing from that is any specifics. What are the trade-offs you're willing to make or people should make? Uh, I, I don't want to lock down, but I also don't want people to get sick. Okay, well, what risks are acceptable? Because here's the thing, Doc, people operating at 25, 35, 50% capacity, particularly in retail, they can't make those businesses go. They will not survive under that hybrid protocol that you're describing. So what is it you're willing to do? And the lack of specificity specificity demanded in conversations with people like Fauci is just infuriating to me. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist for The New York Times, co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us, 
and how we can rule it. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Do you share my frustration with answers like the one Tony Fauci just gave? Exactly. I mean, it, they've been sowing so much panic among people, and, and, and they talk about these measures in the abstract. And, of course, they're not losing salaries. They've got their jobs. These politicians are being paid. Uh, you know, school, uh, school teachers are being paid for um, even when they're not teaching kids in school. Um, what no one is considering is uh, the lockdowns are basically the biggest experiment ever conducted on the public. You know, no ethical scientist would ever conduct an experiment like this without considering uh, uh, the side effects, the, you know, the harmful effects, and without carefully monitoring whether it's working. It was possible to justify the lockdowns at the start because we didn't know what it was. The hospitals might be overwhelmed. You know, we had the 15 days to, uh, you know, slow the spread. But it's now been, what, you know, five, six months, and the evidence of the harm from the lockdowns is just overwhelming. You know, here in New York City, uh, City Journal just ran an article that we've lost 16% of our jobs. That's twice the national rate. And there's still, you know, the schools still aren't fully open. Restaurants are at 25% capacity. Um, you know, the 37 states, tourists can't come here because, you, you know, Governor Cuomo just added three more states. To, you know, just in case any tourist was thinking of coming, he's giving everyone one more reason not to. Um, so, you know, it's crazy. And, and what? what's really interesting, I think, is that the, it's not even that clear that the lockdowns did any good. Right. And and I want to get to that uh, when we come back, too. I mean, the other point here is Tony Fauci trying to be the reasonable man. This is the same guy saying you have to do Thanksgiving virtually. So, I mean, talk, talk about speaking out of both sides of your mouth. It's just exasperating. More with the John Tierney, former New York Times columnist, a contributing editor of the City Journal, author of The Power of Bad. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. We're talking about lockdown policy and the impact and whether they've, uh, John was mentioning before the break, uh, has uh, lockdown policy even had the uh, advertised positive impact of slowing the spread uh, to the extent that uh, we see cases spiking in lockdown in bus states like Illinois. Uh, my home state governor, J.B. Pritzker, has an explanation for why cases are spiking, why things are going the wrong direction in Illinois, despite despite the fact that uh, uh, he has done everything right. Here's his answer. By every measure, frankly, Illinois appears headed in the wrong direction. Why? What's going wrong in your state? Well, I don't think it's so much that things are going wrong specifically in our state. I mean, we are having a national wave of coronavirus. Right. But I will say to you that we also are the third highest testing state in the country. So when you see the case numbers, it is because we're testing much more. Still, our uh, positivity rate, which is going up. I remember uh, when Trump was ridiculed for saying cases were going up because we're doing so much testing and J.B. Pritzker now using that as a crutch in addition to this. He's modeling bad behavior. He doesn't wear a mask in public. He has rallies where they don't encourage people to wear masks in public. Truly, uh, this is now, uh, you know, rhetoric that people understand, and particularly in rural areas in my state, that, well, the president doesn't wear a mask. We don't need to wear a mask. It's 
Yeah, you see, John, the problem is uh, Trump, he's modeling bad behavior, and then all these uh, country rubes just follow his lead. That's why things aren't going as well in Illinois as they would be under if everybody had just listened to J.B. Pritzker. Exactly. It's just, uh, and meanwhile, um, he's not talking about Sweden, you know, which never closed its schools where, where people are going back to work. They're not wearing masks there. And, you know, Sweden had, I just checked, they had zero deaths, you know, yesterday once again. Um, you know, they, no, they basically. No second wave in Sweden, essentially, so far. Right. I mean, they have some more cases, but, you know, no more, you know, but, 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 but still, you know, deaths have been just about zero or one or two now for months. And they never did, you know, these these serious lockdowns. You know, they they messed up at first because they didn't do their nursing homes that well. But they've really, and since then, and in at first they had this high death rate because, oh my God, that shows that lockdowns are necessary. But now, you know, we see that their, you know, their death rate is lower than the United States and other countries. And people just don't want to talk about that. They're so committed to these these lockdown policies. And now you can always pick out countries. People will point here and there. I mean, you know, Peru had the strictest lockdown in the world. They locked down, I think, before anybody even died. And they you know, went on to have the highest rate in the world. They had this incredibly strict lockdown. But uh, when you do a systematic look, as some researchers have done, you know, the, there's one study of 50 countries, and they found that, you know, that high mortality rates are correlated with the age of the population, which makes sense, and also with the rate of obesity, which is one reason the United States is relatively high among countries because we're, you know, we have much higher rate of obesity. But when they looked at other factors, they found that lockdowns and border closures had no had no correlation with the severity of the outbreak at all. And you know, and other people have seen that there's a trend kind of everywhere where we once the virus hits. You know, it spreads rapidly for 20 to 30 days. That's what happened. And then it went back down. That's what happened in the spring. And so you just don't see you know, that the lockdowns did much. I mean, here in New York, for instance, the infection rate uh, um, peaked five days before the lockdown began. It was already starting to decline before the lockdown, probably because so many people had been infected already. And there are an awful lot of people. Um, who are resistant to this virus, who don't show up, you know, uh, because of previous exposure to other viruses. So it's it's not clear that the lockdowns, do, I mean, they might do something and make sense that they do a little something. Probably what they do is, is simply postpone deaths of some, you know, of some people who already have other conditions and who are elderly and might postpone their deaths some. But, you know, that's at best. But one would never, if you were conducting this experiment that you know is causing all this economic damage, and, de- and it's also causing all these deaths from, you know, people whose cancer, whose heart disease isn't being diagnosed and treated promptly. There, you, know, there's, um, there, you know, there's all kinds of mental tolls of suicide, you know, fatal drug overdoses. We know all this happens, you know, when you have a terrible recession like this and put people out of work. Yet it's all being neglected. The only metric that matters is, you know, how many cases, how many deaths do we have from this one particular cause while we're destroying the economy and probably in the long run killing more people than the virus will. I also think a tell in terms of the uh, intellectual vacuity of the position of the knee jerk lockdown folks or the whack-a-mole lockdown folks now is this idea yeah. is this idea sort of articulated by Boris Johnson that if you don't support a lockdown, then you're you're just saying let the virus rip, and that's not what people are saying. What people are saying is let's be a little bit more surgical and sensible about it. Let's 
uh, do what we can to protect the vulnerable in nursing homes and the older and including in in uh, in settings like uh, schools and colleges, universities for professors over the age of 60, as Martin Kaldorfer said, or over the age of 70, whatever uh, is whatever people want to agree upon. OK, fine. But then let the young and, and relatively invulnerable relatively go out and essentially achieve immunity for us all pending a vaccine. Exactly. Kids are at more risk of dying from the flu than from COVID. And, and you know, and for teenagers and, and for young adults, you are far more likely to be murdered than you are to die of COVID. You know, it's such a low risk. You know, we're having all these stories about college students being infected, but no one's going to the, no one's dying. You know, practically no one's going to the hospital even. And it would be, as you say, that it would be a public service to have young people acquire immunity to this virus, be exposed with, they're not going to suffer much, you know, and, and, and that stops the spread of the virus. The more people who acquire immunity to it, um, it slows the spread. I mean, that's how, the you know, that's what happens with all viruses. That's why the flu doesn't wipe out everyone every winter, because most, you know, most people have some resistance to it, and it slows the spread. And, and so the more young people get this, the more it protects older people. And, you know, and there have been scientists, you know, there was, um, you know, this great Barrington declaration of, the, of some leading epidemiologists saying, you know, we should have focus protection, protect the vulnerable, isolate them, but let young people go about their lives and, and help build up uh, herd immunity among everyone. And that's the way, and that's what a vaccine will do eventually, assuming it comes. And, 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 um, but, uh, but we can do more right now without destroying the economy and people's lives. We can actually help build up this herd immunity by going out, by letting young, uh, younger people go, uh, go about their lives. He is John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Dan. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome to back to the show and uh, Jake Tapper over the weekend, very concerned about uh, Joe Biden's campaign schedule. Uh, this exchange with uh, Delaware Senator Chris Coons, Joe Biden, Joe Biden's uh, former seatmate. Coons, uh, you'll recall from just last week, is the uh, august senator who doesn't think that Amy Coney Barrett has her own brain. She's just a Scalia mini me. Uh, anyway, uh, Coons on um, Joe Biden's uh, lack of campaign events while President Trump was sort of in three cities doing three different rallies in the same 24-hour period, Joe Biden was hiding in his basement. Joe Biden didn't have any events yesterday. I'm not saying he should be having unsafe events, but why is he taking a day off with less than three weeks to go before the election? Jake, Joe Biden has campaigned tirelessly, um, but he has campaigned safely. And as you saw this past week during the national town halls that both of them held, it is a sharp contrast between President Trump, who's frenzied, who continues to lie just incessantly morning, noon and night, uh, and pres- excuse me, former Vice President Biden, uh, who is laying out a clear and compelling plan. Polling is showing that it's making a difference, particularly with suburban women. But I agree with you uh, that we shouldn't take anything for granted in these last few weeks. 
Uh, and it is still possible for President Trump to win re-election. That's why I say don't focus on the national polls. Focus on getting out and voting. I would just say that I think it's pretty much the opposite of the word tireless. <laughs> to not have events. It's, yeah. If you're not campaigning, you can't be campaigning tirelessly. Jake Tapper has a point. So does President Trump with respect to suburban women when he was in Fort Myers for one of his myriad rallies over the weekend. President Trump had this message to some of the suburbanites who don't seem to care for him personally. You know, people were saying, well, women in the suburbs, do they like Trump? I said, yeah, they like me. You know why they like me? Because I'm saving their homes. That's why they like me. They may not like me, but they like what I'm doing. (laughs) And that's more important. That should be to close the show for the next two weeks right there, including on Thursday night at the debate. You may not like me, but assess me based on what I'm doing. Is it making things better or worse? I'm speaking to you, 56 percent of Americans who think you're better off than you were four years ago. That's a good close. Not that he's getting everyone. There is um, a lot of crazy about and uh, it's not waiting for Inauguration Day as it did four years ago. I don't know if you feel the way that I do, but I feel like we're living in an alternate universe here. That something has happened to the United States of America. The mental break is coming. And we're all grasping and trying to hold on to our democracy. I see what's going on in Texas. The vote is being repressed. Suppressed. This is evil. This is wrong. The Republicans have to stop. I'm terrified. Listen to me, Republicans. Listen. You are the people in history they warned us about. They warned us about people like you. Pay attention. We're losing our democracy. Wake up. Mm-hmm. Could somebody get that delicate little flower FB, FDR uh, fireside chat stat? This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Masks, masks, masks. Joe Biden, uh, his town hall Thursday evening with George Stephanopoulos, Clinton Foundation Donor Zero, on uh, the topic of masks and why this is so important and how he is a man of science for promoting what seems to be, if he were president, a national mask policy as well as other national policies with respect to COVID-19. The Democrats don't seem inclined to leave this to the states. It's estimated by every major study done from the University of Washington to Columbia that if, in fact, we wore masks, we could save between now and the end of the year 100,000 lives. And avoid lockdowns? And avoid lockdown, yes. You don't have to lock down if you're wearing the mask. Well, that's an interesting statement by Joe Biden to make because it runs counter to the policies they're actually promoting, including at the state level, some of his uh, colleagues, which is no masks, but lockdown. He's saying if you wear masks, no lockdown, then every school should be open by that standard. This idea that masks are some sort of panacea is remarkable. Tony Fauci on 
60 Minutes last night on masks said not quite the same thing, but uh, certainly in that direction. Masks really do work in preventing infection. No doubt. So, so no doubt. So when you find out you were wrong, you don't double down. No, when you find out you're wrong, it's a manifestation of your honesty to say, hey, I was wrong. I did subsequent experiments and now it's this way. It's interesting. There's a uh, study out of Australia. You know, it's this just, I'm not ideological about this. We've said many times you've just gone through the studies as they become available and uh, confer with experts as to their reliability or importance. The uh, results of this uh, Australian study that looked at uh, different masks and their uh, impact on preventing influenza-like illnesses. Uh, the results of this, the results, uh, the rates of all infection outcomes were highest in the cloth mask arm with a rate of influenza-like illness statistically significantly higher in the cloth mask arm compared with the medical mask arm. Cloth masks also had significantly higher rates of influenza-like illness compared with the control arm. Hmm. An analysis by mask use showed influenza-like illness and laboratory-confirmed virus were significantly higher in the cloth mask group compared with the medical mask group. Penetration of cloth masks by particles was almost 97%, and medical masks, 44%. Well, that doesn't seem to jive with what Tony Fauci was saying about what we understand about cloth masks. Well, then we need to confer with experts, which is what we're going to do now with Dr. Marilyn Singleton. She's a board-certified anesthesiologist, the immediate past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. She also attended UC Berkeley Law School focusing on con law and administrative law and teaches classes in the recognition of elder abuse and constitutional law for non-lawyers. She should teach constitutional law for the lawyers in in the houses of Congress. But interesting, the recognition of elder abuse. So this is particularly salient when we're talking about policy related to COVID-19, considering what we know about the vulnerability of older people. Dr. Singleton, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, You wrote a piece uh, at the end of September. It was similar to a piece written by... um, University of Ottawa physicist named Dennis Rancourt, where you sort of summarized a lot of what we know uh, based on the research into masks. And so what is essentially the summary based on all of the relevant research on mask wearing? And how does that match up with what uh, Tony Fauci said in 60 Minutes last night? First of all, isn't it sad that this whole mask thing has become more political than just worrying about infections, but be that as it may, one of the things that when you look at all these studies that's really kind of fascinating to me is all the studies before 2020 clearly indicate that masks don't work. Yes, it was influenza virus that they were testing because Mm -hmm. that's what they were looking for at the time, but the virus is about the same size as the SARS virus. And then after 2020, still there were studies that showed that these cloth masks don't work where they've actually had patients who have COVID sneeze into petri dishes, etc., and still find that all the virus comes out. Bottom line is the virus is very small and the CDC and WHO both agree now that the virus is carried in so-called aerosols and is airborne, which means it's out there in the air. It's not just in cough droplets or sneeze droplets. And when they initially thought that people who weren't symptomatic couldn't pass it on, it was mainly because asymptomatic people aren't coughing and sneezing. So the big droplets fall to the ground, the aerosols float around in the air. And initially, that's one of the things that 
if you wanted to be quite scientific about it, we should have 27-foot social distancing because that's how far these aerosols float until they tend to deactivate. So we're looking at something that goes all the way back to the smallpox epidemic where there was a scientist named Farr who basically made a curve that tells us viruses are going to do what viruses are going to do. And as fast as you get the epidemic, then it will go away. I'm sure people don't like hearing that because we want a quick fix. And that's a lot of what masking is. And people do want to feel like they're doing something. And indeed, when the World Health Organization was writing their positive features of masks, one of the first things they say is it lets people feel like they're helping. You know, that's all well and good, but that's really not quite scientific, and everyone's going on and on, follow the science. And so just to be specific on that, what Tony Fauci said on 60 Minutes last night, what Bob Redfield has said previously about masks more important than a vaccine, which was referenced by Biden, those statements are not supported by the science. They're not supported by the science. Now, it's one of these things. I understand that they're trying to do something. They want to look like they're doing something. But how you see how people are dealing with this is that, yes, there's some side effects. You could have lower oxygen, higher carbon dioxide, all these things, which may or may not be true for everybody. Some people perhaps can breathe quite well through the mask. Others can't. And certainly it's not good psychologically for students, and I think most people agree on that, but they have no, or they're not looking at other alternatives. But the biggest one is this false sense of security. So they don't adhere to other things like hand washing. Look at what Joe Biden did the other day on film where he sat there talking at the lectern, pulled his mask down, and then coughed into his hand. The whole point of the mask is you're supposed to keep that stuff inside the mask and keep your hands clean. It's the hands and touching the face and then touching someone else, etc. So it touching just showed you, how you. yes, yeah, and it showed how silly the whole thing is. Now, now Dr. Singleton, I, I uh, need to uh, invoke the Atlas Rule here, which is to say uh, you're to be dismissed by the DC Press Corps and uh, anybody else who disagrees with you because you're not technically an infectious disease expert. You're only an anesthesiologist and the past president of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, just like Dr. Scott Atlas is only the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center. So you're apparently not serious people unless you're uh, a, a, a defined epidemiologist or infectious disease expert. So, so why should uh, people consider your medical opinion? May I point something out? Sure. That Dr. Dr. Biden, Joe Biden's, main expert is Ezekiel Emanuel. What kind of doctor is Ezekiel Emanuel? A breast oncologist. So QED. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes, that's a fair point. Very good. So what do you say to politicians like Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, who says the reason that Illinois is seeing a spike in cases is because Trump is modeling bad behavior And because Trump allies in Illinois are following that model, they're not doing things like wearing masks. And so um, this is just uh, people that are not listening dutifully to J.B. Pritzker's orders. That's the reason for the spike. (laughs) Well, if wearing masks worked, then why did 
Biden's people test positive for COVID. They tested positive for COVID because they're out there in the world and that's what's going to happen to people. And I strongly say if wearing a mask is going to make you go out and get some fresh air, get some vitamin D, which is very helpful, then shown that vitamin D is very good in protecting you against COVID, go out there and wear the mask, but just make sure you clean it and make sure you don't feel that that mask is 100% going to protect you. Dr. Marilyn Singleton, board-certified anesthesiologist, immediate past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Singleton, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Silicon Valley billionaires, frankly, drunk with power. That was Ted Cruz last week explaining uh, his decision, along with his Republican colleagues, to whistle in execs from Twitter and Facebook for a little bit of a confab before uh, Senate committee again uh, after the uh, censorship of the New York Post story related to Hunter Biden's alleged computer that contained Hunter Biden's alleged emails about Hunter Biden's alleged dubious foreign dealings. Uh, Neil Ferguson, Hoover Institute, had a uh, op-ed over the weekend in Bloomberg about the the so-called good censors. He argues that uh, we need to do a couple of things with respect to big tech. First, repeal or significantly amend Section 230 of the Com Act, making the network platforms legally liable for the content they host, leaving the rest of the courts. Second, We need to impose the equivalent of First Amendment obligations on network platforms, recognizing they are too dominant a part of the public sphere to be able to to regulate access to it on the basis of their own privately determined and almost certainly skewed community interests. Hmm. Uh, They uh, cannot bear the responsibility to remove hateful conduct or content, I should say, because, of course, hateful content, for example, is protected by the First Amendment, and they have used the rubric of hateful content to regulate political opinions with which they disagree, argues Ferguson. He uh, concludes, in 1931, British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin accused the principal newspaper barons of the day of aiming at power and power without responsibility, the prerogative of the harlot throughout the ages. As I contemplate the undercovered and overmighty role that big tech continues to play in the American political process, I don't see good censors. I see big, bad harlots. Although it is worth noting that Winston Churchill, on the occasion of Stanley Baldwin's death, famously said, I'm sorry that he died, but it would have been better had he never lived. I don't know if necessarily Stanley Baldwin is the best example, but uh, his point uh, is... um, Somewhat well taken, although I think there are legitimate concerns. Others, including Robert Bork Jr., yes, the son of that Robert Bork, who I spoke with on Friday, suggest not Section 230 
uh, protection elimination, but uh, more transparency, transparency with their algorithms in the case of, for example, Google searches and with respect to content moderating with respect to what stays up and what stays down, whose accounts get pulled and whose accounts don't, what exactly the, the, the rules of the road are as they're forever changing as Twitter changed them again last week after the flap, redefining what they consider hacked content and who will be precluded from disseminating quote-unquote hacked content. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Julie Kelly, senior contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com, and author of Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You have written on this topic as well and uh, enthusiastically uh, endorsing the idea of uh, whistling these big tech execs before the Senate, if not before a firing squad. Right. Preferably the latter, but I yeah, think we right. might run afoul of some laws. If there are laws anymore, I don't know. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get away with it. Um, I did. So, yes, they are going to subpoena Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg to appear before the Senate Judiciary Committee, I believe, on Friday. This is based on their censorship banning, really, of the content that was posted in the New York Post over uh, this past week. They also took down, forcibly removed a tweet by the president's number one now closest advisor on not just coronavirus, but the lockdown, Scott Atlas. I talked to him yesterday for about an hour and a half in the afternoon. And, um, you know, he's he's terrified, like all of us, about this censorship. I mean, he basically said, if we're going to censor scientific, controversial scientific topics, which masks really aren't. Um, you know, we're going to lose the country. Well, right. And and I mean, like this is happening um, with the enthusiastic support of much of the medical and scientific community. I mean, we've seen what the New England Journal of Medicine has published. We've seen what the Lancet has published and then had to retract because things have gotten so politicized. And And I mean, you just have to take a step back and think about this. I mean, Dr. Scott Atlas was the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center. These are serious people. You've had the Great Barrington Declaration, spearheaded by some of the world's leading epidemiologists like Sunetra Gupta from Oxford, be uh, essentially uh, uh, quashed by Google in terms of the, the, uh, the, the way it was treated. If you were Googling it initially the world over, now it's mostly outside the United States. But you would get uh, criticisms of the Great Barrington Declaration in, in, in rank order priority, but you wouldn't actually get the declaration. And this was a way to, to effectively uh, delist the Great Barrington Declaration in terms of any assessment of what it actually said and any ability then for people to make independent judgments on it. You just have uh, you, you just have one point of view that you're overwhelmed with as soon as you search for it on Google. And and so. I mean, again, Dr. Bay, J. Bhattacharya, Stanford, Gupta, Oxford, Kaldorf, Stan, uh, uh, Har- I mean, I mean, Gupta, Oxford, Kaldorf, Stan, uh, Harvard, and and Atlas, Stanford. You're talking about some of the leading medical and public health professionals from the leading institutions in the world who uh, Google and Twitter are saying you can't express your opinion. It's remarkable. 
It is. And, you know, I think my coverage of climate change um, and the politicization of the scientific community, even before Donald Trump was elected, was a good primer to sort of follow what was happening with coronavirus. I mean, the idea that he cannot and what he explained to me was in his tweet, he was talking about mask mandates in certain areas and how they didn't work. And we know that that's true. Look, here in Illinois, aren't we supposedly having a big spike in cases? People have been running around the state like maniacs for six or seven months with masks on. I drove past a woman in Orland Park last week. She had a face shield on. She was going 20 miles under the speed limit because, of course, your senses are all off um, as she's, I don't know, trying to protect herself in her car. Um, so he was absolutely right. Um, but more importantly, and I'm, I'm going to write about this for a piece on American greatness tomorrow. He became very emotional talking about the emails that he's getting from people who are devastated by these lockdowns. On Friday, he got an email from a woman saying, please fight on. My husband just killed himself last week um, from the lockdown. Another email from a woman whose 14 year old daughter attempted suicide. This is such a tragedy, and he's the only person that's really speaking out um, on this, and that's why they want to silence him. When we come back with American Greatnesses, Drew Kelly, amgreatness.com, I want to stay on the topic of uh, medical professionals and credentials and the consequences of lockdowns. We'll be right back. With Julie Kelly, before the break, we were talking about uh, Dr. Scott Atlas on the President's Coronavirus Task Force, the former head of neuroradiology at Stanford Medical Center, and uh, the criticism that he's received for uh, not being an epidemiologist or an infectious disease expert. So uh, the suggestion is that his advice and counsel, his medical opinion should be ignored. In addition to that, I mean, that's a nice, uh, uh, cheap way to get out of having to confront Scott Atlas. How do you not confront Sunetra Gupta, particularly when the the special envoy for COVID-19 from the World Health Organization backs what Sunetra Gupta, the leading epidemiologist in the world, just like John Ioannidis over at Stanford until they were marginalized because they don't conform to the orthodoxy, but uh, backs what she is saying about the lockdown policies and uh, really on matters that are outside her realm too, economic, but nonetheless accurate, the the impact that this is having on economies around the world that are interlinked and so disproportionately uh, um, uh, on the developing world that relies on the first rule for so much support and, frankly, lifelines like food and water and the particulars of just surviving because of the state of their countries. It's just remarkable. All these people, all these global citizens uh, are so uninterested in what's happening around the globe because of the policies they're pursuing locally. 
Dan, I had the column up Friday called uh, COVID Crimes Against Humanity. That's exactly what this is. The only situation that's comparable to what we've done in to the world is war. Um, and uh, Dr. David Navarro, who you just referenced, the Special Envoy of COVID for World Health Organization, gave an interview, I believe, October 9th. He called this a global catastrophe. He said, we are going to see a doubling in world poverty rates next year. We're going to see a doubling in child hunger uh, rates across the world as well. Child marriages are spiking in Southeast Asia and India because families are starving and have to marry off their daughters. This is a catastrophe on every level that we will be seeing for years because we have listened to the wrong people. You know, you have Anthony Fauci, and I'm sorry, I'm going to rage a little bit. Anthony Fauci on 60 Minutes last night, like he is the victim in all of this, right? He has to walk around with secrets. Well, you know what, dude, then get off CNN every night. Then stop being on the front cover of magazines. You know, stop walking, throwing out pitches like you're a celebrity. But he's the victim, not literally a billion people who are going to starve because, unfortunately, we listen to a, a fraud like him. This has always been the problem is once you do this, how do you how do you get out and you don't get out? Okay. You just continue to change the basis for which you stay in. And I mentioned this a bit earlier, Daniel Greenfield a good piece of the Jewish News Syndicate. Uh, And you see this playing out in real time. He's describing what's actually happening. J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, of course, on with Jake Tapper over the weekend, doing exactly what Greenfield suggested. Once the policy fails, you have two options. You can admit the policy failed and and change course or you can look for scapegoats. And because the policy failure here has such catastrophic results, consequences, they can't admit that what they have said and done has been wrong and that they have wrong people. So they look for scapegoats. And so the scapegoats are obviously Trump and Trump supporters. Yes. Orange man, bad. He's always the scapegoat. I've seen one politician express regret and remorse for what he did. And that is Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. He did not want to lock down a state. He did under political pressure. He was, you know, excoriated for even a partial lockdown. He actually broke down in tears several weeks ago talking about his attempts to reopen nursing homes in Florida for visitors and really started to to cry and had to compose himself saying, I really wonder what our policy decisions have done to people. That's the only person I've seen admit. Meanwhile, you have that lunatic who is governor of New York out on a book tour mm-hmm. and now talking about how they can target lockdowns. What is that scream? Political retaliation. You can go to suburbs. You can go to any town that dares to not support you. He could shut down all of Staten Island because they're re- rejecting his authoritarian tactics. That is where this is heading. The big mistake was not so much the 15 day to crush the curve, although some of us could see where that was coming. It was the decision made at the end of March to authorize sort of this national-wide lockdown. Thanks to Fauci and Burks, who recommended that to the president based on those terrible models out of the University of Washington. Yeah. That's, that's the course uh, of yeah, where we are now. Yeah, and, and, and the president, you know, the buck stops there, so the president has to bear that's responsibility right. for making that decision, too. Uh, it was a terrible yeah. decision. Julie Kelly, senior contributor, uh, American Greatness, amgreatness.com, author of Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. 
Julie, thanks for joining us. Have a great week. Thanks. So in uh, 2012, Mitt Romney lost the Catholic vote to President Obama, 50-47. In 2016, President Trump won the Catholic vote, 52-45 to Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, as a block, it's substantial and it could be determinative. And it's complicated, of course. Um, Mitt Romney won white Catholics, for example, but he lost Latino Catholics by a big number. And Latino Catholics is a growth area in the Catholic Church. Clearly, families uh, just families have more kids and um, President Trump did as well, but not but not as much. Did he lose the Latino portion of the Catholic vote? And so this becomes uh, particularly critical uh, when you have Joe Biden wearing his Catholicism on his sleeve to some extent, to some extent, you know, making an appeal to the social justice element, the Marxist element, the liberation theology element in the Catholic Church. So, you know, it's important for uh, Catholic leaders to step up and remind self-identified Catholics what their faith is supposed to mean to them to some extent, or at least maybe not what it's supposed to mean to them. Maybe that's a bad way to put it, but what the catechism instructs. How about that? Uh, Speaking as a Catholic myself, what the catechism instructs versus the positions that Joe Biden and the Biden-Harris ticket and the 2020 Democrat Socialist Party have taken. And so Father Ed Meeks, who is at Christ the King Parish in Thompson, Maryland, took the occasion of his homily last week to uh, remind Catholics, at least in his parish, five things that they need to know about Joe Biden. And of course, uh, that would apply to Catholics around the country. In uh, my parish, which is a conservative Catholic one in Chicago, there's not so much concern, but of course, with uh, very liberal bishops and, and cardinals and even a pope, uh, you can understand that some Catholics may be confused or forgetful about uh, those positions that Joe Biden has that not only run counter to the catechism, but actually would undermine the free expression of one's faith, freedom of conscience, generally this is uh, ecumenical in scope. This is not just about Catholicism, but it's specifically about Catholicism, in part because Joe Biden has made it so. Uh, here is Father Meeks. The five things that every Catholic needs to know about Catholic Joe Biden. Number one, Joe Biden is unabashedly pro-abortion. This fact is clear from his long voting record his public pronouncements, his allegiance to and support of groups like Planned Parenthood and NARAL, and from his party's platform not only in this election year, but in their platform going back decades. He and they support abortion for any reason or for no reason, right up to and even beyond the moment of birth. He and they opposed the effort in Congress to pass legislation requiring doctors who perform abortions 
to provide medical care to babies who survive the abortion, opting rather to let such babies, babies simply die outside the womb with no care. Mm. Uh, not a moderate. Not a moderate on the issue. Not in practice. I don't care what he says he believes. Not in practice he is. And then when you include the um, death with dignity and other aspects of uh, Democrat Party's positions when it comes to euthanasia and related life and death issues. Along with their anti-life positions on euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, embryonic stem cell research, and other issues, the Democratic Party has become the party of death. And Catholic Joe Biden is their standard bearer. Uh, Father Meeks reminding his parishioners, I am the Democratic Party, is what uh, Joe Biden said at the first debate, was it not? That was number one, pro-abortion. Number two, of course, anti-marriage, pro-marriage redefinition. Number three uh, pertains to religious liberty. And again, this is specific to Catholicism because that's Meeks' perspective, but it's not limited, clearly. Number three. A Biden presidency would be a danger to our already dwindling religious liberty. He and his party advocate for the repeal of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which protects the religious conscience rights of health care workers who decline to participate in abortions and of church-based adoption agencies that choose to place children only with married heterosexual couples, among other things. Biden is also on record committing to restoring the Obamacare mandate requiring religious ministries and orders like the Little Sisters of the Poor to provide contraceptive and abortifacient drugs to their employees, despite the fact that that is a direct violation of their faith conviction and of church teaching. Number four, Father Meeks talks about socialism and how socialism works in practice. Whatever Joe Biden says he is or says he isn't, he is beholden to the Democrat socialists who are running the Democrat Socialist Party, starting with his running mate. And uh, socialism ends badly for uh, institutions of faith and people of faith. Everywhere it's been implemented, all the time. I mean, the 20th, the last hundred years couldn't be more stuffed with examples of this. And so that, uh, that commitment to advancing a socialist agenda, whatever patina you want to put on it, is inconsistent with the catechism because it's going to be inconsistent with the defense of religious liberty, something else Catholics should appreciate. And the last thing I think this was interesting, too, as a high-profile Catholic, the responsibility you have, uh, particularly when you um, are very public that you're a Catholic. This uh, was Father Meeks on, on that, Joe Biden undermining the faith. Joe Biden's positions on these four moral issues as a very high-profile Catholic, a man who served in the U.S. Senate for more than three decades, then as vice president for eight years, and now as a candidate for president, a very high-profile Catholic. His positions then serve to subvert and undermine the faith of nominal and poorly catechized Catholics, as, for example, it gives rise to the effort the misinformed effort known as Catholics for Biden. Yes. Catholics for Biden, uh, a.k.a. Catholics who hate Catholicism. This is Dan Proft.
Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, as we'll talk about in part with uh, Congressman Brian Stile from Wisconsin next hour. The administration of elections state by state, particularly in those hotly contested states, is important. And uh, the resources being brought to bear to ensure as little fraud as possible, also very important. And, by the way, a very real concern. Hudson County, New Jersey, just some recent cases of voter fraud. Postal worker arrested for discarding mail after an investigation conducted by Department of Justice found more than 1,800 pieces of mail, including 99 absentee ballots in a dumpster. Thomas Cooper, postal worker, pleaded guilty to obscuring, crossing out, and changing at least five party affiliations on absentee ballot request forms back in July during the West Virginia primary. Manatee County, Florida, Larry Wiggins, registered Democrat, arrested for requesting an absentee ballot for his late wife who passed away in 2018. Uh, Though Wiggins claimed he was just testing the system, he's now facing third-degree felony charges. In Texas, four people, including a Gregg County commissioner, arrested last month in connection with their alleged involvement in a vote harvesting scheme uncovered by the state attorney general's office, Ken Paxton's office. Commissioner Shannon Brown, Marlena Jackson, Charlie Burns, Dwayne Ward facing more than 130 felony charges including organizing a legal vote harvesting scheme, illegal voting, fraudulent use of absentee ballot applications in connection with a 2018 election, those four people in Gregg County. Another case in Lone Star State involves a mayoral candidate for the city of Carrollton, alleged to force at least 84 voter registration forms for unwitting residents of Denton County. And then this story that actually President Trump retweeted, appropriately so, out of Louisville, over the weekend, WDRB reporting. That's the Fox affiliate there. The federal agents who pulled all of those ballots out of the dumpster in Jefferson Town say they've already been taken back to the post office for immediate delivery. They were found bins full of ballots in a dumpster that uh, was at a house under construction on Galen Drive in Jefferson Town. 175,000 absentee ballots were requested in Jefferson County as part of no excuse mail-in voting because of the pandemic. This mishap comes as the election center workers have worked around the clock to get the final 8,000 ballots sent out this week. We don't need that for Louisville. We don't need that for the Louisville post office folks. And we don't need that for the voters either. It's kind of, it's very discouraging. Yeah, it's discouraging. It's it's worse than that. It's disenfranchising. And so, again, is this a small percentage of the 130 million plus ballots that will be cast between now and, and through November 3rd? Yeah, sure. But as I suggested in Savannah Guthrie's casual dismissal of voter fraud during her moderation of Trump's town hall on Thursday, uh, whose vote is it okay to take away by fraud? Yours, Savannah? Mine? No, I don't think so. And nobody expects perfection. But it's important that you have authorities pursuing these cases and prosecuting them to send a message that, number one, it's real, the threat. Number two, we should be concerned about laws that allow for more opportunity to commit acts of fraud so that we are protective of people's franchise. And um, number three, that uh, we're doing the best we can, people acting in good faith across the spectrum to make sure everybody who wants to vote can vote and their vote is counted. And that's really the only position that President Trump and Republicans have ever taken with respect to this uh, uh, mail-in only election zeitgeist from the left. This is Dan Price. This is the Dan Proft Show. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump in uh, Janesville, just north of the Cheddar Curtain, on Saturday, at uh, which time Senator Ron Johnson addressed uh, Trump loyalists. Senator Ron Johnson, you know, somewhat of an on-again, off-again relationship with Trump, but he's been generally supportive, and he was there to uh, uh, tell cheeseheads to get behind this president. As I was saying in the, in the pre-program, what I admire about President Trump is his tenacity. You know, the, the unfair treatment in the press by the Democrats, by the deep state, it, it doesn't deter him. He gets up every morning, he wants to make America great. And, and he talked about the First Step Act. I, I was a witness. That criminal justice reform was dead. It was going nowhere until President Trump stepped up the plate and made sure he got it done, and he did. Another piece of legislation that's very dear to my heart was something, again, it was, it was dead, it was going nowhere. It's called Right to Try. And I, Mr. President, I will never forget, in that State of the Union address, you started talking about this bill that I'd been championing, and I, you hadn't said the name yet. I'm going, I think he's talking about Right to Try. And all of a sudden he goes, we have to pass Right to Try. And I don't know if you saw me spring up like a jack-in-the-box. But again, that is President Trump's Leadership. He doesn't get credit for it. But he wakes, he wakes up every day like the rest of you, loving this country and doing everything he can to make it a greater country. God bless you. God bless President Trump. Thank you. Oh, all right. Uh, I like that. Uh, that's consistent with the formulation we talked about last week. Uh, Tom Klingenstein from Claremont Institute, which is uh, President Trump is a man who believes America is good and Joe Biden is captive to a movement that believes America is bad. That's a big distinction. Very simply, very simply put. Uh, Speaking of somebody who believes America is bad, certainly believes the orange man is bad. Nancy Pelosi on over the weekend issuing ultimatums again, I I guess because of uh, Steve Mnuchin's ever negotiating against himself uh, in these matters. Nancy Pelosi thinks she's bargaining from a position of strength on COVID relief, saying that uh, the White House has uh, basically to the end of today to come to a, a terms with her if there is to be any COVID relief before the election. We have not addressed the problem, the testing, the tracing, the uh, treatment, the mask wearing, the separation, the sanitation and all that goes with it. So, again, Hopefully that we can learn from each so other and they understand. Let me just say this. We had pages and pages of, of how you would do this in the minority community. They crossed it all out. Instead, they put this sentence. Contact tracing will be paid for by the federal government as part of the $75 billion. Okay, we agree with that. But given state difference, each state shall establish a strategy that is appropriate to its circumstances. CDC can 
provide guidance to the states on elements. Can't. No, must. But in addition to that, we have to have a national plan. See, uh, it's not uh, may or can, it's shall and must. That's the argument uh, over uh, language with respect to testing, tracing, and all of the other government gambits that Nancy Pelosi is supportive of. She wants the entire operation federalized because these are not people who are particularly interested in our federal system of government, federalist system of government, I should say, where so much power resides with states and localities. For more on all of the above, we're pleased to be joined again by Congressman Brian Stile. He is representative in, for Wisconsin's first congressional district, which is just north of us over the border in uh, the Kenosha area. Brian, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first, with respect to COVID relief, uh, what's your sense of where things stand in, in the House and vis-a-vis the White House? We've done it before. We can do it again. But partisan politics is getting in the way. And Nancy Pelosi is doing everything she can to avoid President Trump having a win in the lead up to the election. And you can just see the obstruction that she puts forward, the the bill, the partisan bill that Democrats put forward before a couple of weeks ago. It's just loaded with garbage. That's not a bill we can do. She refuses to negotiate. And it just looks like she refuses to come to the table to put the American people in front of her frustration and her hatred of the president. Yeah, it would seem to me that uh, rather than being conciliatory to Pelosi, you should be accentuating and the White House should be accentuating the divisions with their own caucus when you have leftists like Ro Khanna from her home state of California breaking bad on her and saying, look, take the one point eight trillion and let's get a deal done here because the exigent circumstances demand getting a deal done. That is maybe not everything that we want, but it provides at least some things that people need. Absolutely. We should point out that the Senate Democrats refuse to even bring a bill to a vote. There's a bill that would provide relief to those who need it, those who have fallen on hard times through no faults of their own. And the Democrats refuse to allow that bill to even come to a vote in the United States Senate. It's that kind of partisanship that drives everyone in America just bonkers. All right. So let's talk about uh, the rally in Janesville. Uh, It was uh, touted as a bit of a focus on criminal justice, and that's uh, where uh, Ron Johnson and the president uh, addressed the crowd in some measure. Give us uh, your sense of where this uh, important swing state of Wisconsin stands right now. It is going to be coming down to the wire. It's a jump ball in Wisconsin. I got to go up and speak before the president. And let me tell you, the energy in Janesville for the president was just intense. And in particular, when you talk about our appreciation for the men and women of law enforcement and, you know, myself, President Trump, we oppose those that call to defund the police. And you can see firsthand how far left they want to take us. And the energy there last night to have the president reelected was just enormous. And, and how is Kenosha doing uh, trying to rebuild after the rioting there? I've been spending a lot of time in the community of Kenosha. As you know, the congressional district goes from Janesville to Kenosha following the state line. People in Kenosha, they want to rebuild. As you know, Kenosha is a hardworking, family-loving community. It was hard hit for three terrible nights. Now it's on the process of healing, uniting, and ultimately rebuilding stronger than ever before. It's a real opportunity, and I see it in the community, that we want to come together rebuild the community and be stronger than we've ever been before. And, and what, yeah, what, I was going to talk a little bit more about that, expound on that. The Where are residents of Kenosha after everything that ensued, including, by the way, 
a comment that still baffles me that I, I would still like a bit of an accounting for, which is uh, Kamala Harris saying that she's very proud of Jacob Blake and, and exactly why she's proud of him is a question I'd like answered. But the community and what happened and how they reflect upon what happened. I've been regularly meeting with groups of community leaders, faith leaders, business leaders, and the overwhelming sense is we want to come together and move forward. At the same time, we want an accounting of what happened. I called on U.S. Attorney Bill Barr to do a full and thorough investigation as to where the funding came from, as to where the organization came from. Ironically, my Democratic opponent in this campaign criticized me for that. I think it's exactly what we need. We need answers as to what played out in Kenosha. We need a full investigation, and we need to hold those accountable, in particular those that came from outside the community, outside of our state, into Kenosha to cause criminal destruction. Those individuals need to be held accountable for, and then we need answers as to where was the organization and where was the funding that led to the level destruction that we saw in Kenosha. We can't talk about a swing state without talking about the matter of election administration. And so the some of the early returns, as reported last week, suggest that um, the early voting and the, the mail-in voting does not uh, advantage Democrats in any meaningful way in Wisconsin, as well as Michigan and Pennsylvania, for that matter, at this stage. Uh, I wonder uh, where you think things are with respect to the administration of the election to ensure that it is uh, uh, that that fraud is de minimis, if existent at all, and, and how you see the next two and a half weeks playing out on that score. Every, every state has a different system. I'm, I'm familiar with Wisconsin's system the best. Wisconsin has a pretty darn good election system. Is it perfect? No, but it's pretty good. Uh, before I introduced uh, President Trump in Janesville at the rally, I kind of surveyed the crowd and said, how many people have already voted? We had a good chunk of people scream and yell. I said, how many people are voting early starting on Tuesday? It starts Tuesday in Wisconsin. You can vote early in person. We had a good chunk of people. And I said, how many people are voting for President Trump on November 3rd? And that, that was the biggest roar. So the fact that we're close right now with the number of people that have voted absentee in the state of Wisconsin, knowing that there's going to be a surge on the home stretch, if we deliver that surge on the home stretch of votes, that's where I start to feel confident that we're going to be able to get this across the line. Congressman Brian Style, U.S. Representative for Wisconsin 1, right across the border, Janesville to Kenosha. Brian, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. When uh, President Trump has uh, undoubtedly asked the white supremacy question again on Thursday night, the final debate, Maybe he should just answer, hey, when did Ice Cube become a white supremacist? Huh. Did you see the story in Politico? The inside story of how Ice Cube joined forces with Donald Trump? From NWA to MAGA, straight out of the Democrat Party goes Ice Cube. Now, this uh, started in part uh, around the time of the Democrat National Convention, actually right after it, where Ice Cube took to Twitter and posted a video expressing his displeasure with uh, the... uh, Usual talk from the usual suspects that produce the usual results for black Americans. Here's Ice Cube on the DNC. So, over the last four days, Democratic National 
party held at convention. A lot of people, you know what I mean, getting up there and talking and everybody really eating it up, you know, throwing their hands in the air like they just don't care damn near. So it's, it's uh, you know, what I didn't hear is what's in it for us? What's in it for the black community besides the same old thing we've been getting from these uh, parties? What's in it for us, for real? Ice Cube uh, put forward a contract with Black America that he wanted to discuss with uh, both camps, it turns out, uh, because, fascinating story, relationship. Uh, A good friend of Jared Kushner is a good friend with Ice Cube's business partner partner who dates back to the 1990s. And so after this video was posted, uh, part of what you just heard, Conversation started. An overture was made from Kushner's friend to Ice Cube's business partner, Ice Cube's business partner to Ice Cube. And so he started having these conversations because Ice Cube seemed willing to uh, engage with anybody who was going to take him seriously, give him an audience, go back and forth about some of what he thinks should be part of either party's platform, both parties' platforms. And uh, there was obviously some agreement and disagreement. I mean, uh, Ice Cube has advanced ideas, for example, that are sort of reparation oriented, for example, uh, suggesting that uh, black Americans be exempt from paying income taxes that not adopted. But there was other aspects of what was included in his contract with black America that the Trump team was receptive to, for example, unsurprisingly, given uh, President Trump's pension for spending money and, and and desire to do big infrastructure deals. Uh, $500 billion that Ice Cube wanted for infrastructure projects in black communities around the country. Now, I don't, uh, you know, not supportive of uh, getting a queue of rent seekers lined up uh, and uh, everybody gets their carve out and their their special deal and their uh, shovel ready projects and so forth. But I, I get it. Look, this is a process. And the first thing is walking away from the welfare state uh, Democrat socialists uh, who see uh, government as the means to all solutions. I'd like Ice Cube to focus a little bit more on entrepreneurship uh, and providing opportunities for those that have those energies like he did to go from straight out of Compton to worth, what, $200 million, Uh, a story that really can only happen in America. And it'd be nice if Ice Cube would say that. But nonetheless, an open-mindedness is the first start. And you you have a conversation about where there's sort of agreements in principle, and then you try to build for there, and you try and hash out some of your disagreements or maybe sequence them and so forth. And it's just interesting how Politico reports this because I'm quoting the story here. According to a person familiar with the discussion, Biden aides told the rapper they agreed with much of his plan, but they wouldn't engage more fully until after the election. As September wore on, Ice Cube and his advisors continued to lobby the White House during conference calls. September 14th, the performer and his reps uh, quietly met in a Washington hotel with a group of Trump aides. Ice uh, Ice Cube's group had prepped the meeting by consulting with Claude Anderson, a black economist, an author who argued that African-Americans are being served poorly by both parties. Yeah, that's just 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 painfully obvious, isn't it? Uh, And so those discussions continued. This is really interesting, too. So on October 11th, Cube released a video in which he made clear he wasn't endorsing Biden or Trump, but he expressed criticism of Democrats. Straight up, I believe the Democrats, they've been nice. They've been cordial, so to speak. I don't see them pushing their policies in any particular direction. It's still minority, 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 people of color blank. 
that doesn't necessarily include us, that doesn't necessarily include black Americans, he said. Hmm. And so, uh, again, I, I ask, when did Ice Cube become a white supremacist? Clearly he's not. Hmm. And uh, this um, desire to uh, leave the politics of always from the left, there's a connector here, and that's this uh, weekend interview in the Wall Street Journal. Fred Siegel, ex-liberal, reluctantly supports Trump. Siegel is a professor emeritus at New York's Cooper Union. Cooper Union, the site of Abraham Lincoln's 1860 address where he made the moral case for slavery, you might recall, if they still teach that in history at K-12, through I don't know. Uh, he overcame his distaste for Mr. Trump for three reasons, says Fred Siegel, professor. One, foreign policy, crushing ISIS, pulling us out of the Iran nuclear deal, moving our embassy to Jerusalem, making fools of those people who insist that the Palestinian issue is at the heart of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Two, his ability to withstand a prolonged coup attempt by the Democrats and the media. Siegel is saying, if I'm saying what I find impressive about Trump, it's that he survived. He has an extraordinary amount of arrogance, egotism, and self-confidence. Uh, yeah, and a lot of that was required for him to survive. I think that's right. Third, he goes, uh, goes to the heart of his own political philosophy. He sees the president as a champion of bourgeois values under threat from the clerisy. Mr. Word's dominant, um, Mr. Siegel's word for the dominant elites who despise those values, actually, it's borrowing from our friend Joel Kotkin's book, The Coming Neo-Feudalism, where he distinguishes between the so-called clerisy and the yeomanry, the clerisy being academics like Mr. Siegel, frankly, uh, Wall Street bankers, corporate CEOs, the elites in arts and entertainment, technocrats in government. And the yeomanry are the small business owner operators, the uh, people who play by the rules in society. Uh, they don't uh, see their hypocrisy as indicative of their status the way the, that uh, the clerisy does. And Siegel says, I, I don't want Kamala Harris to be president. I don't want a San Francisco Democrat who's likely to impose elements of the Green New Deal, which he sponsored but lied about sponsoring in television. And uh, it's interesting, too, because Siegel voted for Mondale over Reagan in 1984. So, I mean, this is not just somebody who despises Trump. This is somebody who's been a dyed-in-the-wool left for uh, some time, I'd say. But he says of Mondale, to remarkable on two fronts. If anyone was going to make the great society work, and it was a mess by this time, a Farrago, it was Mondale. Siegel saying Mondale had the intelligence and knowledge, but his defeat, particularly the size of it, uh, Mr. Siegel says, uh, made him rethink a lot of things. He also says this, a man like Mondale would not be possible in today's Democratic Party. There'd be no room for him. I mean, Walter Mondale was seen as way left, certainly as left as anybody since George McGovern up until the time. And 35 years later, he's not left enough to even be in the party, which tells you why Siegel is making the uncomfortable move to Trump. He recognizes what's going on in his own party. And the connection between an academic like Siegel and an entertainer like Ice Cube is this idea that the men and women of always inside the Beltway doing what they've always done isn't working. And the last thing we should do is reinstall them. What we should do instead, even if it's a blunt instrument, even if it's an instrument we otherwise wouldn't choose if we had another option, is Donald Trump. This is Dan Proft.
Welcome back to the show. Uh, Chris Snowden writing at the Spectator, spectator.us, about uh, the quote-unquote health fascists, offers this. Health advice should be credible and honest. It should reflect evidence and should not be mangled for political reasons or bent to manipulate public opinion. You would think we were continuing our conversation. We've been having uh, all show about uh, COVID-19, and you'd be wrong. (laughs) It's not just in the area of infectious disease that this is occurring. It's also in the area of um, recommendations and allowances and public policy associated with alcohol intake. It's funny. I was in uh, Indiana over the weekend, uh, being an Illinois resident, and you forget that uh, not every state uh, operates the same in America. You forget that uh, in Indiana, for example, went into a bar to get a drink and uh, see a guy smoking a cigarette. I'm like. Oh, yeah, that's right. They can still do that here, which seems like a century after Illinois banned all smoking in public places. Um, same thing with you know casinos in one state versus casinos in another state and so forth. You see these little manifestations of different approaches suggesting that, um, I guess, two things. One is there's a different understanding of what the prevailing science says on a topic like the case I'm using, secondhand smoke. And uh, secondly that uh, people have different risk portfolios uh, and uh, what they're willing to risk in, what, in exchange for what uh, reward they seek. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Christopher Snowden, contributor to Spiked and The Spectator, author of Killjoys, A Critique of Paternalism. Christopher Snowden, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. A good piece about uh, what's happening with the effort to uh, reduce the acceptable level of alcohol intake, particularly for men, uh, the characterization of the uh, the health risks, and it's sort of a, a fascinating case study. And uh, well, to borrow the word from your book title, fascinating case study in paternalism that we see manifesting itself in in all sorts of spaces. But give us the uh, the sum total of what's happening with alcohol consumption and the uh, fight that's being waged by the anti-alcohol intake lobby. Well, the drinking guidelines shouldn't really be a terribly controversial area, and it shouldn't really be an area that normal people need to think about at all. It should just be a straightforward scientific question. Every country pretty much tries to provide drinking guidelines for the people. They vary enormously around the world. They're generally lower for women than for men, although not always. Um, But I noticed four years ago when the UK changed its alcohol guidelines that they didn't reflect the science at all. I mean, the previous guidelines hadn't really reflected the science. The guidelines should have gone up rather than down, but they went down. And what we should be doing with alcohol guidelines, really quite straightforward, is you look at the point at which drinking raises your risk relative to somebody who doesn't drink at all. And with alcohol, they have what they quite rightly call a J-curve, kind of like a Nike swoosh, in which the moderate drinkers have a lower mortality risk, and particularly a lower risk of heart disease and stroke than people who don't drink at all. This has been well established for about 50 years. Evidence comes out every year confirming it. So the only question is, where, you know, how much do you need to drink before you stop being effectively a moderate drinker and you start being a risky drinker? And that's where you should set the guidelines. And the accumulated evidence suggests that, to put it in U.S. terms, it's around about three standard drinks for a man, two for a, a woman, perhaps slightly less if you want to err on the side of caution, but about that kind of level. 
and the official U.S. guidelines are two standard drinks a day for a man, one for a woman, and there are moves now afoot to reduce it for men, so it's the same for men and women, just one standard drink a day. And that doesn't fit what the science says. That's too, uh, too stingy. And so uh, if it's uh, not consistent with the science, particularly science that's been built up over half a century, as you described, then uh, what is the angle of those who want to reduce the recommendations below what the science indicates? I think there's a couple of things at work. I think one is that quite a few people, um, particularly those who are more or less anti-alcohol, would like to send out a clear message, um, as they do with smoking, as they do with a lot of things, which is that you know, this is bad, don't do it. If you must do it, you're allowed to do it, but the safest thing to do is not do it at all as with drinking in pregnancy, as with drink driving, as with smoking, and indeed with secondhand smoke. The trouble is that that's not what the science says. Um, the science really does show quite clearly that you have a significant reduction in your overall mortality risk if you drink moderately. Now, it might be that some uh, you know, anti-alcohol academics think that people are not capable of drinking moderately, and certainly the advice has never been to teetotalists to start drinking for the sake of their cardiovascular health, but technically it should be. I mean, that's actually what the optimal level of um, drinking is in terms of health. Uh, when we come back with Christopher Stone, I want to talk more about this as, as sort of a case study in paternalism, as I referenced at the outset. Christopher Stone, contributor to Spiked and The Spectator, author of Killjoys, a critique of paternalism. More right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Christopher Snowden, contributor to Spiked and The Spectator, author of Killjoys, A Critique of Paternalism, talking about uh, his piece uh, about uh, the guidelines surrounding alcohol intake in the West and um, this uh, curious case of the guidelines not comporting with the well-established science. You write, Christopher, for the anti-alcohol lobby, lowering drinking guidelines serves a useful propaganda purpose creates a large new number of new hazardous drinkers overnight, thereby inflating the scale of the problem. In countries such as Britain, where the proportion of the population consuming alcohol above the recommended amount has been falling for years, lowering the threshold boosts the figures and disguises the progress that has been made. And so the the question, obvious question, is, well, why would you want to disguise progress? And the answer is what? If I lose my constituency, then I lose my raison d'etre. Yeah, um, there's always an element of mission creep. There's a slightly self-serving um, aspect to this in a way, I guess. Um, but you've got people out there, you know, I call them anti-alcohol academics or campaigners of the temperance lobby who are always going to want to clamp down on alcohol. Um, most people are not prohibitionists. They're not part of the temperance lobby. But everybody accepts that there are, associate, uh, there are harms associated with alcohol. If, as you see in Britain and many other countries, I think the USA is one of them, you see over time fewer people drinking, more people drinking moderately, and alcohol-related harms declining. That doesn't tend to be a big political impetus to do much more about alcohol. Go governments and politicians tend to do more when they feel that any problem is getting worse rather than getting better. 
and one effect, quoting from the article there, um, of reducing the guidelines as you do suddenly create all these supposedly hazardous drinkers overnight. Well, and but but also too, I mean, it speaks to the, the, that word again, paternalism, the paternalist instinct. Look, I'm going to uh, run your life for you because I don't really trust you to run your life, and you're liable to make mistakes. And and in order for me to get buy-in for running your life for you. I need to uh, essentially frighten you into positions where, well, you know, I better listen to the guy. I mean, he is the commissar of alcohol intake because she is the COVID-19 special envoy and so on and so forth. So, you know, they know more than I do. They got a they got an MD after their name or some other credential. And so this is the way you get more control over the lives of your constituents. Yeah, and this is how pressure politics works. You know, you've got to be media savvy. These people understand what they're doing, whether it's campaigners or a number of academics. They know that they need to generate headlines from their studies, from their research, and that the headlines need to be scary. So things have to be getting worse. We have to discover that alcohol actually is uh, even more dangerous than we thought. Um, and that's how you get traction. That's how you get political movement. Nobody gets anywhere by saying, look, this, this problem isn't that big a deal and it's actually getting better. Yeah, right. I know. And, and so I wonder if you think this fits in with, as an example, a case study of the sort of woke politics that is uh, dominating so many cultural institutions in the left. Andrew Sullivan writes about this over at his site, uh, trying, to under, trying to explain why he thinks wokeness is winning leftist illiberalism is what he's specifically referencing. And he said a couple of reasons. One, it's emotional. Uh, so you generate a righteous revulsion to something like you know, drunk driving and, and that gets you, that's your entree in. The second reason is it's uh, super easy. Again, this case study. And the third, uh, third reason is tribalism. You know, you create a constituency around this uh, good thing that you're doing that's buoyed by the moral indignation you feel for people doing bad things. And then social aspiration, that there's status that's conferred when you are uh, very publicly doing something that is uh, perceived either even by the public generally or even just by a small cadre of influencers as uh, uh, particularly noble. And I wonder if you think this fits into that categorization the way that racial politics and other identitarian politics does. That's what Sullivan's mainly writing about, of course. Well, in the sense of the, you know, the envelope is always being pushed further forwards, then, yeah, you know, once people accept um, certain policies, then you have to go looking for, for new ones and new dragons to slay. I think with the alcohol issue, um, there's an underlying kind of puritanism at work, mm. really. And... I think a lot of people on the public health side really don't like the the nuance. I mean, there is a nuance here. Alcohol undoubtedly can cause harm. There are all sorts of harms we could mention, whether it's uh, you know, street violence or drink driving or uh, health harms to the individual. We all know that. We all accept it. We all understand that you, know, you, you can drink moderately, but excessive drinking, by definition, is bad for you. Um, the nuance comes with this Jacob, comes with the evidence on heart disease and stroke and overall mortality, that actually this is not something that is always evil. I mean, aside from the enormous social benefits that people get from drinking, there are also health benefits there. And I think there's a concerted effort, not just in America, but around the world. I've seen it, as I say, in the UK, but then it happened in Australia, where these guidelines are being driven down to zero. And I think really that's a long-term aim. 
to drive these things down to zero so that there is a simple message for public health people to put out there that alcohol is risky at any level, that there's more impetus for anti-alcohol policies to be brought in. Um, And I don't think they actually trust people with nuance. Uh, I really think they say, look, it's okay to drink a little bit. People will drink a lot. And, of course, some people will. But I don't think that's a good reason not to tell people the truth. Well, clearly, clearly they don't believe people have common sense. And, of course, that ironically, they turn out to be the ones that are particularly lacking in uh, in that attribute. In addition to that, uh, you know, that what's the philosophy these days? Anything to save one life, Christopher? If we could just save one life by reducing the guidelines below what the science tells us, maybe we'll save one life. Maybe we'll prevent that one heavy drinker from cirrhosis. Yeah, which, of course, is not the way to base policy. We, do, we don't do that with anything else when it comes down to it. It's nice to say that life is priceless, but this whole COVID-19 situation has shown us that actually there is an enormous trade-off to make. Um, you know, we could lock down for all sorts of infectious diseases. We don't do it. We're doing it now, and we're seeing the damage that it, it's, it's, you know, it does. Um, so no, the idea that we move mountains to save one life is simply not true, and it's particularly not true when it comes to self-inflicted harm. I mean, the, the, the difference with COVID-19 is it is a genuine public health issue because right. it's an infectious disease. Right. But when it comes to people uh, only putting their own health at risk, the argument for moving mountains to save one life is even weaker. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Christopher Snowden, contributor to Spiked and The Spectator, author of Killjoys, A Critique of Paternalism. Christopher Snowden, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and as we close this Monday edition, uh, I just want to address with some real-world examples this notion that, uh, oh, if I just vote for Biden, if I vote against Trump, if we get rid of Trump just to make it make it all stop, with the contentiousness, the vitriol that just dissipates. You think so? Here is a, a flyer that was put in the door of a friend of mine who lives in suburban Chicago. I wonder if you're ex- seeing or experiencing the same, particularly in... Uh, woke left suburban communities around major metropolitan areas or the major metropolitan areas themselves. Dear neighbor, you've been identified by our group as being a Trump supporter. Your address has been added into our database as a target for when we attack should Trump not concede the election. We recommend that you check your home insurance policy and make sure that it is current and that it has adequate coverage for fire damage. You have been given fair warning. Always remember that it was you that started this civil war. Be prepared to face the severe consequences of your preemptive actions against democracy. What do you think? Think it's just going to quietly go away if uh, Trump is defeated on November 3rd? Even if he concedes uh, he's defeated fair and square or as fair and square as possible and he concedes the election. You think that uh, people who would type up this um, poorly written uh, but nonetheless threatening letter and take the time to insert it into people's doors, keep a database of Trump supporters? You think they're just going to go away or they're going to visit a reckoning upon people whom they can? That actually what you'll see is encouragement for the cultural Marxists, the Jacobins, to be more destructive 
both in terms of physical property as well as in terms of people's careers, family life, life in general. I mean, really think through this and encourage your friends to do so. Another example of this, this is in a swing district, swing suburban district, again, suburban Chicago. Jeannie Ives, a West Point grad running against incumbent Sean Caston, who I've spoken about on this show before. One of those suburban districts that really need to be won if the Republicans are going to have any chance of taking back the House. A district held by Henry Hyde and Peter Roskam for the last more than 50 years and now is being held by somebody who's effectively an honorary member of the Socialist Spice Girls. He is just as left as AOC and the girls and even more distasteful. So a supporter of his uh, put a jack-o'-lantern on the doorstep of a supporter of Jeannie Ives as somebody who started a conservative Facebook group in uh, the suburban community in question. And it's a jack-o'-lantern that's got a penis carved out. You've been blanked F Trump. And then on the back of the jack-o'-lantern, not political. He is just a terrible person. Sure. F Trump on the jack-o'-lantern, but it's not political. Consider this the bile-spewing goon who would do this. We will come for you. And you're going to tell me if I just appease the mob, the mob goes away. No, appeasement is provocative. Have you not watched how provocative the appeasement of public officials has been to the mob around the country? Leftist activism. Flyers like I described. Jack-o'-lanterns like I described. Come for the stupidity and stay for the spite. That's what you want to be a part of? Put it to the, the people in your circles of influence and ask them the same. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.